Welcome to episode 85. How many of you have pain somewhere in your body that hasn't yet gone away? Chronic or persistent pain is defined as pain that continues longer than three months. As pelvic health physiotherapists, our clients typically present to us with pain in or around the pelvis. For example, their vagina or vulva, rectum, penis, tailbone, low back, deep in the hips, lower abdomen, you name it. Many of our patients have seen multiple practitioners in the past, massage therapists, chiropractors, osteopaths, naturopaths, their doctor, physios in a variety of settings. Many have had imaging like x-rays or ultrasounds and they are desperate for answers. Thankfully, we are starting to hear more about the involvement of the nervous system, meaning the brain and the nerves, when it comes to pain persistence. Nerves carry messages back and forth between our body and our brain, and our brain's job is to interpret these messages and decide whether or not to give the output of pain. There are so many factors that influence this process, and I'm thankful to have Christy Weepy, a psychotherapist and executive director of the Better Mind Center, to talk with me about some of the factors that influence pain, such as past experiences, personality traits, stress, emotions. Christy's approach to treating chronic pain is based in neuroscience and rooted in compassion working to empower her patients with accurate pain education in effective mindfulness-based and cognitive behavioral techniques. In this episode, we hope to hit home that if your recovery plan for addressing your persistent pain doesn't include some work on your nervous system, you're probably missing the boat. Our goal is to help spread the message that your persistent pain is not in your head, but rather related to your brain. But good news your brain has the superpower of being able to adapt and change. I'll be right back with Christy Weepy. Listeners, have you ever heard of the benefits of using a high-quality compression garment during pregnancy, after birth, or to address feelings of vulnerability, maybe in your tummy, or heaviness in your undercarriage? Did you know the evidence tells us that using these garments can decrease pain ease apprehension, and increase the ability to move with comfort in your day if you have these unwanted symptoms. I'm grateful to have SRC Health as a podcast sponsor, and I want to take the time to tell you about their high-quality products. Using a revolutionary fabric created by medical professionals, SRC has designed a line of compression shorts and leggings that are made to support your back, tummy, and pelvis in pregnancy, or help you feel less pain and more confident with movement, as you recover after pelvic surgery or birth. Their products have helped many for symptoms like incontinence, diastasis, and prolapse. I also have to add their customer services like no other because they stand behind their products. Check out their full line. Head to their website, www.srchealth, and enter the code THE PELVIC FLOOR PROJECT, all capital letters, at the checkout because you'll get 10% off. Don't your mind and body deserve the support? I'm really looking forward to this episode with Christy Weepy here. Um, I actually, I don't think that I've done this topic justice yet uh, around, you know, pain, because I think this 
this podcast is called the pelvic floor project, but not everybody comes in with specific pelvic floor symptoms. Maybe, you know, it can be pain in, in different areas of the body that the pelvic floor could be related to and the whole body is connected. But, you know, I've heard a little bit about your center, the Better Mind Center, Christy, and I'm I'm looking forward to you kind of educating us a bit about it and why it started. But I actually, whenever kind of someone brings something like this attention to me, I, I like to really do my research and look at, oh, what are these people up to? What are they about? Where are they? What kind of messages are they putting out? And I actually listened to a few other podcast episodes that either yourself or other people on your team have done. And I just loved your messaging. So it was a huge yes, you know, to talking about this with you on the podcast. And we're going to talk a little bit about kind of how the brain is related to pain and how, you know, how you approach things. But will you start really quickly, Christy, before we kind of dive into this, introduce yourself to the listeners and let them know um, a little bit about you. Yes, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me onto your show and for your collaborative spirit, which is felt right now in all of our interactions. So thank you. I'm really glad to be here. My name is Christy Weeby, like you said. I'm the founder of the Better Mind Center and a psychotherapist who specializes in chronic pain. So it's pain all day, day in and day out for me. And I never tire of talking about it, educating people about it, and then watching the quality of life shift, hopefully, that can happen for someone who is experiencing daily ongoing chronic pain and then is able to unlearn that pain experience. I say that I specialize in chronic pain as well as the underlying associated anxiety and depression, because like you referenced, there's a big brain-based component when it comes to much of chronic pain, and this can often intersect with nervous system activation, including other fear-based disorders like anxiety and depression. So that's kind of my wheelhouse. And I got into this because I was a chronic pain patient myself, so knowing how different your life can feel like the filter on your entire experience of relationships and like moving through the world honestly is is really impacted by how much pain you're in and i i just love specializing in this i like i said i really never tire about from nerding out about pain i'm just like do this all day well and i the thing that i really love about this podcast is that I feel like our healthcare system is so siloed, you know, kind of physiotherapists do this, um, psychotherapists do this, the pain clinic will do this. But uh, I think this is such great nuanced conversation that we can have around how our disciplines or our professions are intertwined and how we might be working with the same client or same patient, but just looking at things slightly different, but it should feel, you should feel similarities. And, you know, it's interesting because I think about there's so many different things I think about when trying to plan out this episode and just even just kind of the invisibility of pain and the pelvic floor. I think we both work with areas where everything's invisible and you can't see it on the outside and it makes it so much harder for people to understand, doesn't it? And for them to wrap their head around. And I think as you know, we call ourselves physiotherapists in Canada or physical therapists in the United States, but people associate us with physical pain. And, you know, some of the some of the things that I see over and over again when it comes to pain are, you know, people really finding it valuable for us to touch pain and validate pain. Like I, I there's so many people that's like, oh, you found it. And then you can tell that's very meaningful to them or, mm-hmm. um, you know, 
being able to say, like, like I said, validating and all oh, this much, this much, I can see how much this affects you, right? Instead of just, oh, it'll get better. I also think people are always looking for a diagnosis. And I think that some of us as, as practitioners, you know, especially if they come to us after seeing many other practitioners, like oh, I've seen all these people and they haven't helped me. I hope you're the person. And and all of a sudden you feel that pressure of, oh gosh, what what if I'm not that person? And and this is where I'll be honest with you, I'm always thinking some we're missing something here. Like if they're if they've been to massage therapist, chiropractor, physiotherapist, kinesiologist, they've been to the gym. And, and I'm always asking about, do you work with any other practitioners, like counselors, therapists, and some people are absolutely yes, they'll say, and other people are like, why are you asking that? Like, you can see that they're like, I told you I have pain right here. Why are you asking me if I see a counselor? And so I'm interested for you to, you know, speak a little bit on that, because I guarantee you see some of the people we see that are struggling in that way. Um, Will you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And Yes, we work with people who have pain in all different parts of their body. So neck pain, back pain, fibromyalgia symptoms, gut issues, toe pain, ear pain in your left earlobe, and also pelvic pain. And like you mentioned, we end up often siloed in our own experiences in the medical system over here. And then each individual body part can even be sliced out. And then mental health over here. But I feel like I have a little window into a lot of different silos just by virtue of the fact that my clients are dealing with lots of different issues. And then they kind of come to us as a home base. So they may have gone to an orthopedic surgeon for their leg pain, or they may have gone to a pelvic floor physical therapist for their pelvic floor pain. But eventually they come to us and say, hey, I've been all over the place. He might not have encountered a really knowledgeable and safe physical therapists like you, they may have encountered a lot of dismissive providers Mm -hmm. and they eventually encounter this information, not usually offered by a medical provider. A lot of our patients are finding this information themselves and they come to us and say, I know that my pain is real because I feel it. Mm -hmm. I have been dismissed a hundred times over. I have a feeling from the education I've learned online that the brain is the central force for my pain at this point can you help? So I feel like I get to hear a little bit about all of these other specialties, but unfortunately I hear about them from a place of those silos failing the patient. Mm -hmm. And absolutely. I sense what you feel as well around the importance of being able to name and validate a diagnosis. Yes, that can be super comforting, but I think what's underneath that is I, I see your pain. I believe that it is real. I want, I don't do not want to accept that as your ongoing reality what can we do about it? And I think that's really comforting for people. And I consider my, ourselves as pelvic health physiotherapists, sometimes like last, last ditch providers, like some people want to do the private stuff last. And I wonder if you find yourself the same, like sometimes a last ditch provider where everything else has failed. And I think a lot of times people are like, I oh, don't, no, oh my gosh, I don't, this is not in my mind or I, this would, would be what people would think like, oh, like I don't, that's going to be painful. I know this is related to a traumatic history and I'm not ready to bring that up. Like I can imagine that sometimes you are also a last stitch provider like yes yeah 100 yeah yeah but can you talk about it because I mean as people that work with pain I mean I don't have a negative stigma around it being related to the brain the brain's so powerful the brain's so neat the brain's so changeable will you explain to people then um just why is 
explain pain and and why is the brain related to it? I think that's important to establish right off the bat. I'd love to talk about that. And I'd love to talk about it as it relates to acute pain versus persistent pain. I think the brain is the brain is involved in both of those instances, but I think there's a distinction that I'd be happy to make, at least from where I'm sitting, in my opinion. First of all, the brain is involved 100% of the time. The brain is the only part of our bodies that actually can generate a sensation of pain. All different parts of our body can hurt, but no other individual part of our body can generate a sensation of pain. So the brain is involved in 100% of our pain experiences because our brain generates a pain sensation and then sends that pain sensation to the area of the body that's affected. So the brain is involved 100% of the time, no matter what doctor you see, no matter what your value set, no matter how willing you are or interested you are or aren't in understanding the psychological components of pain, the brain is involved in pain 100% of the time. The second thing I want people to know about pain is its purpose. Pain is a danger signal. That's why we have pain. That's why we pass it down from generation to generation. It's a warning sign. If you were to accidentally touch a hot stove, your brain recognizes that's a threat to the tissues on your fingertips. Your brain recognizes the threat, flips your brain into threat detection mode, generates a sensation of pain and sends it down to your fingertips so that you can move your hand and protect your body. That's a really useful mechanism. That process works. That process is the same one that happens when we deal with acute injury, an illness, pain after a surgery. In those acute instances of healing, pain, again, comes to the brain 100% of the time, but it's protective. It's your brain's way of recognizing, whoa, your body is going through something. You need medical attention, rest. You need to recover brain, I am going to generate pain until your body has healed. It's a way of warning us, I need to rest, recover and get help. In acute instances, when that works, that's a, that is a really useful process that humans are going to continue to pass down for generation to generation. Pain gets our attention and it's protective. The issue that I encounter with my clients is I'm not dealing with people who are in an acute healing phase of pain. I'm dealing with people who are having pain for six months or longer, and that's when we start calling it persistent or chronic pain. And what recent research is telling us is if you look at the whole pie chart of people dealing with persistent pain, 15% of those people have an ongoing physical problem in their body or pathological disease that's continuing to cause pain, things like um, autoimmune diseases or cancer. The brain is still involved, but there's a physical component that needs ongoing medical attention. That leaves 85% of all chronic pain patients who are experiencing pain that is no longer caused by physical damage to the body, but rather caused by learned neural pathways in the brain. And what happens there is there's a disconnect between what's going on in the body and what's going on in the brain. The body eventually heals. Our bodies are designed to heal. Our bodies want to be well. Sometimes they need helpful interventions, but our bodies want to heal. So what happens to the patients that I'm dealing with is their bodies have healed. There's no longer a medical treatment that's necessary, but their brain has not gotten the message. Their brain is stuck in the on position of threat detection. And at that point, you can do all the physical treatments in the world. And some of them might provide short-term relief, but until that person is able to start unlearning the pain experience in their brain from a neural pathway point of view, that pain can continue endlessly. So that's where I'm camped out. That's a lot of information. So I'm curious how oh. some of that fits in what questions. Well, I just think about right away, like some of the people that I see with persistent pain and some of the kind of trends that I see 
are things like maybe birth trauma, just like um, some sort of trauma, sexual trauma, birth trauma, medical trauma, like something in the pelvis that they, you know, and I can, I can tell that it's something that maybe they haven't worked through or processed because maybe it comes up often or there's a lot of tears shed around the topic, like different things that have happened in people's past. Um, I would say, um, and I want to get into this a little bit, but you know, anxieties, stresses, people that have a lot going on, or it seems like another event tied to it, like a death in the family, something like that, you know, you know, um, and I think too, just beliefs, beliefs around pain and what it means, um, perseveration on, on it, catastrophization, you know, so I'm, I'm interested to see then if maybe you can talk a little bit about then from that lens of what 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 what's going on with that 85% of people like what are some of the what is if you break that down a little bit further what are the explanations oh I love what you're alluding to and just as a side note like how important is safety with you and your patients like dealing with such often intimate parts of our body and then also intimate traumas like how lucky they are to have someone as safe as you are receiving that like massively important um, but I love what you're alluding to. So we, I mentioned earlier that the purpose of pain is to warn us of threat. It's a danger signal. And we talked about it up until this point as a warning sign of physical threat to the body. Like with that hand on the stove analogy, the, or example, the, the danger is there to the tissues on your fingertips, the broken leg, the danger is to the, the bones in your leg, but our brain can output pain when threat of any kind is input, and this is including psychological and emotional threat. So if we think about like everyday examples of this that happen all the time and people don't think much of it, like a tension headache after a stressful day at work or butterflies in your stomach before a first date, like if you have butterflies in your stomach before a first date, you're not like, I'm going to go to a doctor and go get a scope because there's something up with my stomach. You're just like, yeah, I have butterflies. I'm nervous. What that actually is, is a physical sensation because your brain is perceiving threat, psychological or emotional threat. I'm nervous for this first day. And most of the time when the stressor clears, so does the physical sensation. But there are like tons of those everyday examples, blushing, goosebumps, like real physical acute reactions to psychological and emotional stressors. I don't think people spend a ton of time thinking or worrying about those. The issue again comes when this is chronic. Like what if the stressor is not a first date. First date is going to go well or it's not, but it's going to end one way or another. What if the stressor is an ongoing demanding job with an overbearing boss? Or what if the stressor is a traumatic event that that person is working through or a toxic relationship that that person is in? Pain can be generated in response to emotional and psychological threat that is ongoing in nature. And it can go to any part of our body. It's not always butterflies in our stomach or attention headache. It can go to your ankle and go to your wrist. It can go to your neck. It can go to your pelvic area. It can go to any of these places. And that's not well-known information, at least from where I'm sitting in my neck of the woods here in LA. It's starting to become more widely disseminated. That's not everyday information. So that's when people go down all these rabbit holes of feeling like I need to go to a hundred doctors for my neck pain when there may have never been an injury or a problem with their neck or their pelvic region or their ankles to begin with. Mm -hmm. I think I saw somewhere, Christy, that um, 
we hold most tension around our orifices, like around our like kind of and and that obviously like that pelvic region has many orifices and it's a very our brain loves to protect that area. So I think, like you said, I, a lot of times people are like, well, I don't know, I haven't had birth trauma, I haven't had sexual trauma. And I would say we don't necessarily find out why the tension's there. Like, I don't think we always know. Right. I always know I, I think that's a really interesting place for research in the future why does our brain choose that area of the body and there are some common ones pelvic region is definitely a common one so is the back so is the neck but I don't think we have good research on as to why that is yet so when I listen to you talk about it and explain it I mean I feel like because I'm so fascinated with the brain, I don't see any negative stigma around coming to see someone like you because it makes sense. And and I, you know, anyone that has persistent pain, I find, I think about that right away. Like, oh, I wonder what that, what else is going on and what their beliefs are and what some of these trends are. However, there is still this underlying negative stigma around counseling. So can you speak to that? Do you feel like that's changing at all? Like is as, as you know, like I think younger generations maybe had a little bit more negative stigma. Do you feel that changing at all? Because when I listen to you, it makes perfect sense, but there's still this kind of belief around like, oh, it's not in my head. I really do feel it. And I know you've touched on this, but I want to know, yeah, is this changing? Yeah. Oh, it's such an important question and such a heartache for me when, when so many people are resistant to getting the help that they need. I have a few thoughts. I do think it's changing overall. I hope anyway. I think younger generations are more open to it. I think certain pockets of the the country or the world are more open to it just because of societal norms that are shifting. Uh, So I think there is hope. Um, I'm really intentional with my language to to, to describe pain in as scientific, approachable scientific language as I can, because it is real. It's again, pain comes from the brain hundred percent of the time. If you break your leg, if you have a paper cut and you're bleeding, or if you have a tension headache, or if you have chronic pelvic pain that has no physical cause, but is due to these kind of fear-based components. It's just, sorry, the brain is, in, is responsible for the generation of the pain hundred percent of the time. So I really push the use of the word brain because no one is experiencing pain without it. The place where I think it gets sticky is when uh, people have to start tackling fear reduction work in order to feel better. That's opening a huge vulnerable place for people that they might not be aware that they're walking into or necessarily ready or willing to explore when they have pain. They might wanna go to the doctor and get, I relate to this. Like if I was in immense pain and I was also going through this very on like an ongoing stressor or a traumatic event or something that was really difficult for me, I would love to just get an injection and be on with my life. Right. So like there's also a readiness piece, even like around, am I ready for what this entails? And I think people deserve their agency in terms of deciding when they want that help or if, and when their life supports that work. So you kind of alluded to another question I have, and I think a lot of other communities will relate to this. Um, I think smaller communities just have less resources sometimes than bigger. 
But I think that pain education is lacking in the quote unquote pain clinics. Um, I think a lot of times they have, you know, it is focused on medications and injections and diagnosing and finding the right place. And I know that's well intentioned. I think sometimes it's just hard to make changes in healthcare because we're busy, our caseloads are full, and so our heads down and we're on the hamster wheel sometimes. I don't think it's because these practitioners don't care. I think change is hard, but I wonder um can you speak to that a little bit on and I know that's one of the reasons you do these podcast episodes is to increase awareness but maybe speak to some of the people that have been going for a long time to different you know pain clinics and for a lot of people an injections all they need I'm not saying it's bad but if if it's something that has to be ongoing and you're not seeing a change can you speak to those people a little bit about um yeah what would you say to them yeah it's so tough because it makes someone feel like we're describing this. You're so open to it. It also pings on a lot of your expertise. Like I'm obviously open to it because this is what I do all day. But if a listener is hearing this and they're like, I've literally never heard of what you're talking about. So that can't be, that can't be what it is because why wouldn't 85% of all chronic pain is brain-based in nature? Well, why don't, why doesn't at least 85% of the population know this? So it can make people feel a little bit crazy. And I, I think it's just what you said. It takes a long time to transition from medical, from first of all, clinical presentations, clinicians recognizing, whoa, something that I'm doing is working and it's different from what I read in the textbook. Then you need years of research to prove it. Like we had a really exciting study come out in a couple of years ago, 2021, um, in the in JAMA Psych around the effects of pain reprocessing therapy, which is a psychophysiological, a, a psychophysiologic intervention for chronic pain. An awesome result. We're like, yay, look, it's in this, it's in this publication. Like, surely this is going to change the world. It's like, going to explode. Oh, yeah. Hey, what do researchers want? More research. And, th- and that takes a very long time to get off the ground. So years of research and then years of re-educating new generations of doctors and physicians and clinicians. So it just takes an unbelievably long period of time. And I don't think it's because, like you said, I don't think it's because practitioners are uninterested or unwilling to change their ways. It just, we are stuck in an actual decades long paradigm shift from body bias, pain can only be caused by damage to the body, to mind-body awareness of our brains and our bodies are connected and constantly communicating with each other. This paradigm shift is literally taking decades. Mm-hmm. And I think I think probably, you know, one of the big messages to people are if if this sounds appealing to you, you can self-refer. You know what I mean? And and I bet you anything, if you brought up, if you brought it up to that care provider at the pain clinic, I bet you they'd be very supportive of it. <laughs> you know, too. like I think I think quite often they are. It's like I said, I think that appointments are short, people are busy, and sometimes you forget to bring up options, honestly. Like I think it's not always that it's it's not valid or it's not helpful, but I, I think um, we have to keep in mind when we go into someone's office that, you know, they have a certain expertise, certain tools in their toolbox, and they're not going to remember to recommend every single tool every time. And it's sometimes on us as clients or patients to be kind of advocating for ourselves too, right? And and if this sounds like something that's up your alley, then absolutely you should, you know, try it, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Big time, big time. And I think practitioners again, most of whom are well-intentioned, I believe, it's hard to disappoint someone in pain. Like when the physical interventions work, and they do work, 
for lots of people in lots of situations, that probably feels wonderful to the practitioner. Like, oh, I helped this person who was really hurting. But when those interventions don't work, they might not feel like emotionally or institutionally equipped to process that with their patient to say like, hey, I know you had a lot of hope in this series of injections or in this series of physical manual therapies and it didn't work. Like, let's talk about other options. Support the, the institution is not set up to support those conversations. And it probably is hard for the well-intentioned practitioner to say like, hey, we need to kind of turn over another leaf. So I think it's everything you said. I think people want to help. And it often comes down to the client self-referring just due to the way that our healthcare systems are set up. Christy, can you speak a little bit about I, I don't remember if this was just something that we talked a little bit about before we decided to record this or if I heard this in another podcast episode you did, but are there certain personality traits that people ha- that people might exhibit that, that have a higher tendency of persistent pain? It's one of my favorite questions. And I want to talk about the personality traits and also hope to provide an explanation for why that grouping of personality traits uh, creates a condition where chronic pain can come to be. I'll preface this by saying I name all of these personality traits with a, with love. I, I identify with all of them. Again, I was a chronic pain patient. I raised my hand when I name each and every bullet point. So I say all of these with a lot of empathy and understanding, but the person, a person who is prone to experience chronic pain might be um, a perfectionist, might put a lot of pressure on themselves might tend towards self-criticism or self-harshness, be really intense with themselves, have high expectations or even impossible expectations of themselves. These are the yes people. If you need something done, go to a person who is prone to chronic pain. They will likely say yes, give their resources and energy away. Uh, These are people who have difficult times setting boundaries. So again, it's like a lot of giving away, giving away energy, emotional energy, time, resources, and a difficult time guarding in, a difficult time like protecting themselves. And at the same time, there's an immense amount of uh, emotional repression possible because while we're so busy giving away our energy to others, we're pushing down our own needs, which can create a lot of tension in the body. So these by and large are high functioning and potentially over-functioning people with huge hearts, feelers, empathetic people who want to do for others but are neglecting themselves in the process. The reason the, the reason why this isn't random, why it's not just this random set of characteristics happens to develop pain comes back to the purpose of pain. Pain is a warning signal. And we talked about it can, it can warn us a physical threat to the body, but it can also warn us to any emotional or psychological threat. And I mentioned some examples that were external in nature, like I'm in a toxic relationship. My work environment has an overbearing boss. That's me in an external stressor. We can also be our own internal stressors. We can offset our danger alarm mechanism ourselves through the way that we relate to ourselves. If I'm putting a ton of pressure on myself, riding myself really hard, having unbelievably high expectations of myself, and then becoming extremely frustrated that I'm not able to meet those expectations. I'm offsetting my own nervous system all the time. I am my stressor. I am offsetting that danger alarm mechanism. And that's a whole conversation that does not include um, fault on the person 
who has learned to treat themselves that way. No one wants to be in pain. No one is creating their own pain. It's never anyone's fault. And these personality traits are adaptive strategies. I don't think anyone comes into this world being like, I think it would be awesome to treat myself with a lot of intensity. These are learned strategies, generally speaking, that people develop when they are raised in fear-inducing situations. So they are adaptive strategies more than they are personality traits, in my opinion. So again, I say all of that with love. I do not think anything is anyone's fault. And I think all of those things are shiftable. I don't even think that they are core to someone's personhood. I think they're adaptive strategies. Well, it's definitely interesting. It makes me always ask questions like, let's say I'm working with someone that some people are very hypervigilant around pain. Like I, I can tell, I had a conversation with a client recently who she's a, like a ultra marathon, you know, runner. So she's going to have pain. Like, like wh- when you do that much with your body, like, of course you're going to have some aches and pains. Um, and, and I, we had a really big discussion cause I said, are, is your goal to have zero pain, you know? And, and, and she said, yeah, because I think of it as danger and I've ignored signals in the past. And so I think I've become a bit hypervigilant is, you know, like I could listen to that and think like, oh, that's very interesting. Um, I also have people that are terrified of the pain in birth. And so we talk about that and that usually comes from something, right? And and some people, I can just see differences. It can be client back to back. One that's like, I cannot tolerate pain. And I often like, what, why is that? Do you think? And, you know, either I had a lot of pain as a child, maybe, um, or, or my mom was just always kind of on me. Like, are you okay? Are you okay? Like almost really quick to jump on that. And other people can see that this pain is for something. This this pain is for a baby. It's very interesting people's perceptions and beliefs and attachment to the meaning of pain. And I can see that that can make the amplification seem to move, right? Yeah. yeah. And again, I mean, I'm sure your listeners know this. I know this from looking into your work. I can- your patients are so lucky, your clients are so lucky that you're asking those questions, that you're being willing to reflect, like, hmm, that's interesting that your goal is to have no pain. What does that mean to you? Like, why is that so important? Like, so refreshing to hear that you even have that dialogue. But we're learning so much about that as physiotherapists, too. I mean, I think traditionally we were trained a little bit more in the biomechanics of the body, and we're learning how much the central nervous system, well, we've always learned it, but I think the emphasis is is on it a little bit more the importance of pain education. And there was an episode I did about a pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy and with um, some physiotherapists that have recently done a bit of a a dive into the research on pelvic pain. And there used to be a lot of information out there. I think it still floats around about pelvic instability and um, dysfunction, like a lot of scary words that make people think something's wrong with them. But they're saying, you know what, it's actually more central nervous system, like upregulation or panicking about the changes that are happening in the body. And some of the predictors were like, p- the people that had a higher chance of pain were um, sleep deprived. Like maybe they were having a second baby. There's a toddler keeping them up and they're pregnant job dissatisfaction. Um, yeah, not active. Like a lot of things that basically point to, you know, increase sympathetic nervous system activity and and that that amplifies the pain too so i think we're learning a lot about it too um and because it i be i'll be honest with you christy i feel like it gives a lot of relief to my practice that i don't have to find the pain and fix the pain all the time i think that there's a lot of pressure on us as physical practitioners sometimes so i find a lot of relief in that it is related to the brain and that you can help people see how that can change yeah yeah, right. that's what 
so great to hear. And that's uplifting. And I would imagine you're on the front lines of that shift because unfortunately I still hear a lot of, a lot of the opposite in the, in my, the, in my practice, the body bias and only biomechanics and never asking anything about not creating the safety, even in the ther- in the healing relationship to be able to allow for those conversations and the Thank fear. You. Yeah. Yeah. No, you go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I just love what you were saying around the sympathetic nervous system and that being so important. And what the work that I'm doing with my clients is it is fear reduction work. I can't, I don't, I'm not a manual provider. I don't, I don't touch my patients. I don't ask them. I don't, I don't have the competency to tell them how to move or how much movement or exercises I'm working with clients exclusively to reduce their fear in order to reduce their pain. So it comes back to what is pain? Pain is a danger signal. Pain is the output when a threat is the input. So our goal, our target is always reducing fear. Reducing fear in general, it might be lifestyle changes. It might be, again, getting out of that toxic relationship or um, removing yourself from that unhealthy partnership. It might be internal changes, reducing fear within yourself, treating yourself with higher amounts of self-compassion, treating yourself with kindness as opposed to coming at yourself intensely. And also a huge amount of it is fear reduction work in relation to the symptom. Pain is scary. We develop all kinds of fear-based behaviors in response to our pain. And the more that we do that, the more that our danger alarm mechanism stays on, the more pain we have. So fear reduction work is pain reduction work. I can imagine it is so um, helpful. And I don't know if you do this much with practitioners that you, like, let's say you have a client that's also working with a physiotherapist. I can imagine how much harder it would be if your messaging doesn't align with the the other therapists they're seeing, right? I'm sure that makes it a lot harder. I'm trying to be so careful about that because I never want I never want to step on the toes of a treatment that is working. So if there are times, even if I, from where I'm sitting, believe that the pain is brain generated, that body treatments do not have a direct correlation to the pain experience. That doesn't mean that the body-based treatments are not going to have any effect. Like if there's safety wrapped up in that relationship, that's fear reduction work. And that can be so powerful. That's so important. So I'm constantly trying to listen for, are the other treatments helpful? Are they supportive? Even if I'm coming from a different theoretical approach, I don't care if the clients get better. Uh, And then listening for, and this is often the case, when those treatments are actually not productive. There's a lot of fear mongering. It's, It's not feeling like a like a healing relationship. It's feeling like I need to keep going there because they press on these three nerves and tell me I have to come here for the rest of my life. That that's when I kind of start poking around. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I wonder, I'm thinking of um, a listener that's listening to this and okay. So a couple of questions. One would be every, your center is virtual. So you're, I want you to talk actually, before I go to my next question, will you describe what, what's the better mind center? (laughs) Yeah, we're almost entirely, I I see clients in person in Los Angeles, but the rest of our providers all see people online. Cause again, we're psychotherapists and health coaches. So we do not examine our patients. We don't lay hands on them. We are staunchly in the brain based field. We're working with clients who've already been through the rigmarole with the physical evals. Like we're not someone's first call. It's not like somebody falls down, hurts their leg, and they call the better mind center. We're, we're someone who they have gone through extensive 
physical testing. If something had to be treated medically, they've already done it. So we are very careful to make sure we're taking on clients who we believe can we can help. We don't want to work with someone who has an ongoing medical issue with these techniques alone. Like we want to make sure they really have all the support that they need. The people who are calling us again have had pain for six months or longer. And at this point, it's the neural pathways in their brain that have learned and remembered and continue to perpetuate that pain experience. So massive amounts of information on what pain is and what pain isn't teaching them about pain so they can feel empowered to respond to it moment to moment in a calmer way. And then practicing lots of techniques to help a client be less avoidant of the pain sensation, increasing their movement repertoire again, increasing their movement vocabulary, decreasing the amount of avoidance behaviors that they have throughout the day. So a lot of, um, education and techniques that are directly in response to fear reduction of the symptom itself. And then there's a whole other half that is more important to some clients than others around fear reduction in general. Again, like fear reduction in terms of external stressors, fear reduction in terms of internal stressors that plays uh, a bigger or a smaller role, depending on the client's like, kind of presentation. So if I'm picturing now, if I kind of go the next level and if I picture someone that's listening to this and thinking, oh, what would that look like for me? So if I like, obviously, like I have quite a few listeners in the States, but also quite a few in Canada. So can you describe someone's going to be thinking like, what does that look like if I meet with them? You, I know you can never say because everybody's such an individual and they have different goals and they have a different history. But what if someone asked you, you know, um, how long does it take for me to get in and how many sessions would you expect that I need to have? How long are they? Um, do my benefits like extended medical insurance cover this? Will you talk some of those things that you frequently get asked? Because again, yeah. we don't have anything like this. I mean, we have individual practitioners like psychotherapists in our communities, but um, you know, some, I know that I know that I think in our community for sure, and I'm sure this is a trend in a lot of places, it's hard to find mental health care practitioners right now. People are having a hard time in general. So I know that some people are having a hard time in my community, for example, finding someone. And I don't think everybody specializes in pain. So I, I want you to go through a little bit about what the frequently asked questions and so people can picture what this would look like for them. Oh, I so appreciate you asking that. Especially that, I mean, all of it, but especially that last piece about people not specializing in pain. Like that's one thing that's a stab to the heart. I've had clients come and they're like, I felt like my pain was brain-based for a long time. I thought there was a psychological aspect. Like I went to a psychotherapist who said that just kind of generally reducing my stress would help. <laughs> yes and no. I mean, it's great to generally reduce your stress, but if you're not like directly challenging a person's fear-based thoughts about their pain. Like people who are in pain are thinking about their pain from the second they wake up to the second they go to bed. Their fear thoughts are running rampant. If you're not directly challenging that, if you're not directly challenging their avoidant behaviors, you're not going to get very far. So I appreciate you naming that. Um, we work really hard to not have a wait list because it's so awful when people call us and we say like, awesome, you're in excruciating pain. We'll get to you in two months. I can't take it. So we work really hard to keep ahead of the need with the practitioners that we have. Um, we generally tell people to expect between eight and 12 sessions. Sessions are 50 minutes so that people know how long that might take. Some people are totally out the door after those eight to 12 sessions. Our main research study on the treatment modality that we use, pain reprocessing therapy, 66% of people were pain-free, 98% saw pain improvement after nine sessions. 
So there is the possibility for that short-term work to have tremendous benefit. It depends on the amount of fear, that individual client's relationship with fear. Some people really are just fearful of the body part that hurts, and they just need to work through that, and then they're out the door. There are other people who that's their entry point. My arm hurts. But we discover we have a long-standing relationship to having a very difficult time accessing safety for so many valid reasons. Those are the people where 8 to 12 sessions would get you started, and we will either continue on with you for that fear reduction work if that's within your means and access point, or we will link you to other resources as necessary for that kind of ongoing fear reduction work, which has a lot to do with how a person relates to themselves, not only how they relate to that one affected body part. But it sounds like basically, um, you know, you'd help them kind of understand it, which I always think is the most important thing is that we just help people kind of, we understand it. Yeah. We name it. We help them understand they're not crazy, but then you'll give them a few strategies, you know, that they're going to implement until you, they see you the next time. Right. And the goal would be that eventually they kind of change the way that brain tags that pain or that meaning of the pain or that, like you said, the fear around the pain. And so the goal would be that you don't have to keep going because you're making a a change to the way your brain reacts. Correct? Yes. A hundred percent. And not only as it relates to the one symptom that that person is experiencing, but lots of times our clients tell us like, Hey, I'm coming to you for pelvic pain, but just so you know, I've also had back pain, insomnia, gut issues down the line we are, this information translates like to the next time that your body talks to you, right? Like for the next time your mind body uh, connection is really active. The next time you go through some major life transition, you, you maybe you'll need a tune up of a session or two, but you take all that information with you. So it's protective against future pains as well that are mind, body and nature. One other thing that I, I wrote down here, and again, I don't remember if I heard you say it or if I took it somewhere off your website, but just the idea that um, a lot of our patients are looking for an instruction manual, like I do this and then I do this and I do this, but um, that rather we we kind of need an idea or a framework. And so I think sometimes, again, we have a lot of those thoughts in healthcare, like, you know, you do A, B, then B, then C. But I think what you're saying is, um, you know, there's there's not exactly a roadmap. There's an idea of what we need to do. There's a process we need to go through, but it doesn't look the same for everybody. Yeah. Yes. And listen, I would want an instruction manual too. Like when I was in pain, I was like, no, don't introduce uncertainty. Don't tell me you don't know exactly the day my pain is going to go away. It's so intense to experience that level of pain. So I would want an instruction manual too. But the reality is fear reduction work depends on that person's individual relationship with safety. Even the word safety, like there are certain individuals, communities, identities where safety, there's just a push there. That's not, that's not ever been accessible. It's like, what do you mean fear? Okay, I can, we can talk about reducing my fear. But when I introduce the word safety, it's like, I've never felt safe for so many reasons that that requires a a whole other conversation. Maybe we're working to increase a sense of ease or increase a sense of comfort. Like you can imagine all the different conversations and offshoots that come from this idea of fear reduction depends on how much a person has experienced fear. Mm -hmm. 
Christy, is there anything else that, so I'm going to make sure that I put in the show notes kind of how people can find your clinic. And I, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. I've I've talked with someone else from your team too. And I think oh, maybe a lot of you came to this because of your own experience, you know, and yeah. just, <laughs> I mean, same with most of us that work in pelvic health, it's usually kind of, whoa, and then it smacked me in the face and now I'm passionate about it. But um, I really do appreciate your approach and your, um, you know, you're, you're very personal when it comes to talking about this. And, and I appreciate too, your collaborative thoughts around this. I'll make sure that I link your clinic, but is there anything else I, I, that I haven't asked you that you feel is really important for this conversation today? You've asked amazing questions. This has been so much fun and it's been quite thorough in a short period of time. The only thing, other thing I would add in is it would be quite possible for someone listening to not to have a hunch like, oh, is my brain involved, but not be sure after just this one conversation, right? Like, again, this is not well disseminated information. And I talked about pain today as if it were a dichotomy. It is either body-based and you get body-based interventions or it is brain-based and you are doomed if you don't get these brain-based interventions. In reality, like they're, the brain is involved 100% of the time, right? So even if you have an injury, your brain can amplify the sensation of the pain. Even if you have an illness, nervousness around it or fear around the illness can amplify the sensation of the, involved in the illness. And the brain can be involved in a per, like a percentage of your pain experience. So it's way more of a gray area than as I described it for the purpose of education. So if someone is unsure, if they're like, do I have to fit in one of these camps or the others? other? No. And also there are resources to help you suss out what is going on, how much of it is body-based, how much of it is brain-based. Is it entirely brain-based? It is normal for you to not be able to do that on your own. Like, And there are resources that can help figure that out. Yeah. I honestly, every client that I see leaves with at least one podcast recommendation, just because I think education is like so important for what we all do. So I picture mostly this going out to people that, you know, their pain's lingering longer. Um, You know, they're not right after birth. They haven't just recently been in a car accident, but it's kind of like, why isn't this going away? So I picture myself kind of being like, you need to listen to this episode. So I hear what you're saying. It's on a spectrum, right? And and for some people, they'll it'll be um hopefully this episode will help them realize, oh, this is another avenue I can approach. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so, especially with some of the uh, what I'm understanding about your work and what you've shared here and on your website and knowing your work, like yeah, the 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 pelvic region in particular. There are a lot of stressful, big life transition moments and or intense, like intimate parts of our body involved where it is normal if fear is mixed up in that. It would be almost strange for fear to not enter the picture at all. So again, like this is this is on a spectrum. All humans experience brain-based pain. All humans experience fear at some level. And the more and more we talk about this and make it normal, I'm hopeful the more people recognize like this is a normal exploration for pain reduction. Thank you so much for your time, Christy. I appreciate you and all you're doing. This was wonderful. I appreciate you too. And that's a wrap. If you enjoyed the show, can I ask you a big favor? Would you do one of three things for me? Number one, leave a review because we could all use a little positive feedback sometimes. Number two, download the episodes because it helps me see what people are interested in. Or number three, 
share it with somebody else because sharing is caring. Catch you next time.